Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. Hey. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. I've got Limehouse podcast listeners with me here, okay? They're safely attached, but, you know, you never know. They might slip and slide. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. Where are we? That sound you can hear around you, around your ears, the, 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 the creaking and the revving of an engine can only mean one thing. You are in a van. That is correct. You, you, I've taken you to work because I think you need an away day. And you're bored, right? You're bored, you're stuck in that bloody office or where, whatever it is you do. Tanning salon or, you know, maybe you're a bricklayer somewhere and you're sick and tired of the boring old commute to work. Well, I've taken you in my van because it's just better for you. You need a change, a change of, of, uh, of scenery. So here we are. And I hope you in, I hope you get something from this. Why am I doing it? Because I kind of want you to feel like, oh, this is this is what it is for Will to, to go to work and what, what he's doing. Do you did you ask me to do this? No, you didn't. Am I am I doing it? Uh, you know, against your your will and against most people's better judgment. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So on my left, I've got Rosie. Say hello, Rosie. Say hello. That's um, obviously a dog sniffing a microphone. And on my on my left, I also have Arlo. And Arlo just, he's pretty much asleep anyway, so. Um, and outside, look, we, um, we've got Gypsy Hill, home of the Gypsy Hill Brewery, home of some of the finest beers in all of, all of Sittendom, or Sittendom, all of, all of planet Earth. This week we have AC Grayling, guys. Let's not forget that, okay? Before you get carried away and and start shouting about how <clears throat> poor the audio is and and how mad I sound, I mean it's one of the the better interviews that I've done. I'm not. I'm not. I won't. You know. I'll leave. The, I'll leave it to you for the final decision there. And frankly, I enjoyed it an awful lot. Why? Because he's he is a philosopher, so. It's it's an emotionally driven podcast, which suits me down to the ground. Although we do, um, <clears throat> unfortunately, uh, do we do actually um, talk facts as well? So I'm sorry about that if you're a, a, a fact hater. But we are a fact based show, so we get stuck into those factoids. Um, and yeah, it, it's one of those conversations where I went up after chatting with Lord Adonis and it was kind of late in the afternoon I was pretty ropey, pretty tired and in the background you'll notice that there's a whole bunch of people talking uh, in another room and I couldn't do much about that so you'll have to go with that but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the, the whole quality of the conversation will distract you from those background noises and I actually think well, after editing it I was kind of like well this is quite a cool good this is good background this, this sounds quite cool. 
So yeah, that it, it's there's loads to look forward to in this conversation. You know, plenty of reasons to be cheerful, and I would I'd say that he he does offer a lot of. Okay, yeah, we're definitely in the echo chamber here, guys, but he does offer a, a lot of hope. And frankly, after I left the conversation, I had almost been galvanised into a position of a final say on the. The final sale, say, say, a final say on the deal uh, is, is going to happen. So, yeah, I mean, the, the optimism in me has shone through and it's shone, shone, shone out of AC Graining and into me, and I'm pretty sure it's going to do the same with you. But anyway, guys, geez Louise, it is a beautiful morning. I wish you were actually in this van with me, but all you can have, all I can, I give you the taste of, of, of the van. I've got um, Ming the Merciless, Flash Gordon, BB-8, and two and three minions on my dashboard keeping me company, because it's it's that kind of it's that kind of a van, you know. And you you got plectrums up there on the dashboard. You, you've got honey on the le- honey and hummus and um, sterile absorbent uh, gauze for if I cut myself because that's standard, right? And generally, the whole level of detritus, and it's not pretty. The dashboard, the, the dashboard's dusty. There's some crappy lavender up there, and and two dogs that are molting everywhere. Guys, it's not even warm enough to molt. You know, get over it. <sighs> Freaking canines. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the rest of this show, and I'll see you on the other side. And I will say. I will say this before before I go. Hit us up on Twitter, you know, at Limehouse Pod. We're, we're, we're always there for you. And if you want to drop us an email, um, you if you want to uh, feed us, give us some feedback and complaints on my uh, van podcast, it's the Limehouse Podcast at gmail.com. I'll probably see you in the garden. I'm gonna I'm gonna show you around a garden. We're going to do some winter pruning, and I hope it lifts your spirits because it it is beautiful. You'll be able to hear some birdsong and and get out in the open because I know you want to do that. Because we're all human beings, we 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 like being around nature. So let's let's get out there. Yeah, and on that note, we'll we'll say goodbye and I'll I'll leave you with in the capable hands of AC Grayling. Take care now. Bye bye. On research. I was, um, I, I did, I did a lot of you know heavy sort of Brexit stuff, mm-hmm. and then stumbled across the de- Desert Island Discs, mm-hmm. and found out some really wonderful things about you, mm-hmm. and also very obviously very um, hard hitting and emotional ones. But I was really struck by the uh, choice of song mm-hmm. that you that you chose. Mm-hmm. Um, you're quite a sentimental chap, aren't you? I am, in my. I think we all are yeah. sentimental at bottom, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Where, where does where does that come from? Yeah. Actually, I think it's just a natural um, bit of the human makeup. You know that we have a, a rational side and we have a, a non-rational emotional side. Yeah. And of course, the non-rational side, or what, what some people uh, call the spiritual side, and I, I, I use that term in a non religious non-transcendent sort of way I mean really the complex of our 
of our feelings and our attitude to the world. So it's a, it's a mixture of our emotions and our intellectual stance. Mm. But perhaps the most important thing about us, the yeah. richest thing about us, and it reaches down very deep. So uh, to be able to be expressive, to to admit that one has those sorts of feelings is very good from time to time. Yeah. Why do you think the Brits are so bad at it? Well, Hist- historically, I suppose. I don't know. that, that uh, It's only half the Brits, after all, it's only the yeah. men. I mean, I think the women are <laughs> at, at doing it, which is a very good thing. And we've yeah. learned in recent times um, the male half of the population to be a bit more open about that, which is a good thing. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of a myth, actually, because there are different ways of expressing sentiment. One is, you know, you can clap your mate on the shoulder and say, oh, you know, my old boy, let's have a drink. And, and that's how you deal with it. But it is a way of dealing with it because it sends a, a complex message of support or sympathy or yeah. expression of feeling. So, you know, it, th- this is a very, very, very human thing, a very important part of our mm. the dimensions of being human. So in terms of philosophy and politics um, and experts, we've heard a lot from the right uh, media that seem to barrack anyone that is any form of expert. Philosophically, how do you look on those people that tend to sort of scream in the face of experts? Well, I think they're very misguided. I mean, firstly, I should point out that the whole point about philosophy is that it's kind of professional amateurism. (laughs) Philosophy is just really about uh, reflecting and, and trying to do it in a an organised and disciplined sort of way. But genuine experts are people like engineers and brain surgeons and, uh, you know, technical people with a a, a lot of of, of knowledge applied to a particular field, Mm. making use of the great fund of experience and research that goes into those fields. And uh, when it comes to people who know about uh, sociology and um, economics uh, and uh, who do a lot of empirical work on our society we should listen to them yeah. but it, it's the, the, there's no Royal Air Force saying uh, have the experts on tap not on top so yeah. you, you don't want to be run ruled by experts but you do want to pay attention to things that they have to say in the process yeah. of making a judgment yeah. so I think that was a very ill-informed and um, mistaken thing to say and of course it's Mr Gove who said it you know we've had enough of experts a dreadful thing for a Secretary of State for Education to say. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I mean, I um, I did. I, I had a thought because listening again to your Desert Island Disc, um, and I've never really referenced. I've never actually spoken to anyone who's been on Desert Island Disc that I'm aware of, which is quite cool because I spent years and years gardening on my own, and I've listened to hundreds of them. Mm. Um, and I, I did. I just want to ask what your can you remember like a defining th- thought from your childhood that you can make an umbilical link to now that sort of has sort of driven you on a pathway of philosophically? If you had a f- your first vague notion of an awakening sort of in terms of like, you know, not Plato, but, you know, something along those lines. Well, actually, Plato did have a, a role to play because um, I, I first read Plato at the age of 12 and I happened, fortunately for me, I suppose, to read one of his very early dialogues called The Comedies, which is very, very accessible. It's about uh, continence, about self-restraint. And um, at the fact that it's very accessible, the fact that I'd heard about these great iconic figures, Plato and Socrates and 
so on. Already am. I used to page through the encyclopedia, being a rather earnest little boy. And uh, that, that is pretty earnest yeah. at twelve. Wow. <laughs> oh well, I, I was delighted when I got my my ticket for the grown up uh, part of the library. Uh, and I was able to go in there. First thing I saw was the Benjamin Jowett translation of of the complete works of Plato. Just I took down the first volume and opened it at the first page of the Carmelies. Yeah, and because it was accessible and because it was so fascinating, and I thought to myself, well, these great figures in our cultural tradition. Perhaps I didn't quite phrase it like that. <laughs> I thought if they were dedicating their lives to this. Yeah sort of exploration that's what I want to do too yeah not very long afterwards uh, about um, when I was about 14 I think uh, I, I found and bought a very battered old uh, um, copy of G.H. Lewis's biographical history of philosophy G.H. Lewis was the consort of George Eliot okay. they never were able to marry because he wasn't able to divorce his wife he wasn't able to divorce his wife because a friend of his had had children by his wife with his consent. Yeah. And so because uh, he had consented to the adultery, the court in those palmy days wouldn't let him divorce her. So he wasn't able to marry George Eliot. And they were the only rather distinguished couple in Victorian society who were known to be living together in sin. And even though they weren't welcome everywhere, nevertheless, there were a lot of people who did welcome them. Anyway, uh, he wrote a wonderful biography of Goethe. It's still, I think, the best biography there is of Goethe but he wrote this marvellous thing the biographical history of philosophy which still stands up today I mean even though we're talking about 150 years ago uh, it still pretty well stands up today as um, an introduction to a non-specialist to the history of philosophy well I I think that's what um, I I suppose actually a year ago before I went off on my travels um, I was I was in Waterstones looking for philosophy that I could sink my teeth into. And typically, whenever this, this ever happens, when I was a kid, I used to go into HMV or, or Waterstones and immediately be, well, I'm here now, come on then, what should I buy? And I get struck down with this absolute panic of, well, oh my God, you know, mm. it, there's too much choice. Mm. But I did pick up some Plato, but uh, yeah, I didn't, didn't read it. So, but uh, it was pretty heavy going. So this book that you've suggested is a little easier. Yes, if you pick up uh, Plato's middle dialogues or later dialogues, they they are very um, rich, philosophically rich, uh, and so you do need to know a bit to to get the best out of them. But if you read the very earlier things, um, they are are pretty accessible and and interesting to read. I was going to ask you a rather heavier question uh, based on this um, lecture that I Mm. saw you give and you spoke briefly about the party whipping system mm. within uh, <laughs> yeah you know three line whips and mm. all that whenever you say, whenever I say that out loud it does sound extraordinarily weird mm. the party whipping system it, it is interesting specifically because of Brexit mm. in the line that Corbyn has taken and asked his MPs very you know fervently to take this particular line and vote with the government on Brexit on certain amendments what kind of a democracy do you feel like we're living in at the moment? Well, I, I think we're, we're living in a gamed democracy. Mm. That, that, that's to say, um, very painstakingly, we've worked out a, a system, a representative uh, democracy, which, if it were to be run according to its intention, would probably be OK. See, the, the, the point that I make is that we have two rights as, as citizens. We have a right to a voice, to a vote. And we have a right to good government. Mm. And the problem historically has always been how do you move from the right that everybody has to have a say in 
choosing the government and in choosing the laws under which they live on the one hand yeah. uh, to getting good government on the other hand because in a very pluralistic society with lots of different interests and uh, points of view you get a great uh, debate a great conflict of mm. opinions and um, somehow out of that you have to reach some decisions, you've got to get some agreements and compromises, and you've got to produce government, which is a government for everybody. It's a government for each and all. And as um, our uh, democracies have become more like democracies, you know, as, for example, the franchise was extended and more people got the vote and so on, yeah. and it's less than 100 years you know, since uh, everybody had the vote in this country, so it's been a long, painful, slow process. But as that has happened, so politicians have learned how to organize themselves more and more so that they're not too much under the control of the people and they can gain that system a little bit. And one way of doing it, there's a number of ways that they do do it, but one way they do it is by uh, introducing this very rigorous system of party discipline, the party machine. Mm. And and this is where where whipping comes in. So uh, what, what tends to happen is we elect representatives... Not delegates, not messengers, but de- uh, representatives. They're meant to go, get information, think, listen to argument and discussion and debate, form a judgment and act on the best interests of their constituents and their uh, country. But instead of which, when they get into Parliament, they find that they're caught up in the cogs of the party machine and they are obliged mm. to vote for the party if they want the party's support to be re-elected and if they want a chance of getting office. And therefore, they don't vote in the interests of their constituents of the country, they vote in the interests of their party line. And that is the thing I very much object to, because we've seen the distortion that resulted uh, in our system after the EU referendum of Parliament not discussing the referendum outcome, not voting wisely in the interests of the country, but being whipped by their party leaderships on both sides of the House Mm. to take decisions which are, are frankly appalling. And how? Because I, like I said earlier, I did. I have spoken to um, <clears throat> Lord, Lord of Danis this morning, and um, and I did. I, you know, I, I, I asked him whether or not how, how he felt about uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the the party whipping system, in, in terms of how he has more or less forced his MP, well, forced his MPs to vote through and go mm. through the lobby with the Tories. And yeah, you know, he was. Uh, Re- reasonably annoyed about it, but I would say mainly he was sort of uh, sort of in a position where he was happier because when it really counted, uh, the, the Labour did vote against the government on the um, the Dominic Grieve amendment. Yeah, Amendment Seven. Yeah. But that is a very important amendment, and it's probably the one that's going to save our bacon. Yeah. Although the House of Lords, the so-called undemocratic House, might come to the rescue of our democracy. Because uh, an anomaly has um, been introduced by the not not uh, very astute um, thinking of, of our Prime Minister after the election last year, 2017, which she called to get a mandate for Brexit and knew she lost her majority. So that sends a very clear message. But she decided this was going to be a two-year parliament. Mm. So that means that uh, amendments introduced in the House of Lords on the current bill will not be able to be overturned by the House of Commons. And the House of Lords are determined to play mayhem with this bill. And they may even introduce, and I know Lord Adonis is planning to introduce, a clause requiring a referendum for the country on the the terms of the final deal. And if that happens, of course, that's another lock in in the system. So um, all all these are are rather good possibilities, and I certainly hope they'll work out. 
Now, I, I think perhaps why um, Andrew Adonis may not be as exercised as he as he would otherwise perhaps be about the whipping system in the House of Commons is that the House of Commons, by allowing itself to be whipped as it has been over the Article 50 trigger and this current bill, uh, has made itself irrelevant in a way to the final outcome of the Brexit process. Mm. Because the um, sentiment in the country, we see already that public opinion is swinging with increasing force against Brexit. And we know that there is a Remain majority in the House of Commons. Yeah. In fact, if you listen to the leading members of the all-party parliamentary group on Brexit, they will tell you that there are 10 Brexiters in the Parliamentary Labour Party. That's the Labour front bench, Corbyn and Macdonald and some others. And there are about 35 or so of them in the Conservative Party. Anna Subri will tell you that, yeah. which means there's a very considerable Remain majority. And they're desperate for an excuse to stop Brexit. They're all, they're all very worried about voting in, in a way that seems to, quote-unquote, disrespect the referendum outcome yeah. for the following reason. The proportion of the total electorate that voted leave in the referendum was 37%, yeah. which is nowhere near a mandate for, for Brexit, etc. We know that. But the reason that they, they nevertheless, quote-unquote, respected is because that's about the proportion on which many of them get their parliamentary seats. So if they if they went against that, it would be as if they were objecting to the general form of our democracy. Yeah. Which, by the way, they ought to be, because the first-past-the-post system is absolutely hopeless and unrepresentative. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, by the way, this whole Brexit debacle has done is it has stripped the lid off the, the need for a, 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 quite a radical reform of our political and voting system and our governmental system, which this has shown to be unfit for purpose. Well, I, I didn't want to go down that road, but it's one of one of my bugbears is the voting system. But and where do you come in on on that? Obviously, uh, are you a proportional representation representation man? Are you an alternative vote system sort of man? I don't care so much about the actual mechanism, providing it is more proportional to votes cast. There should be a, a genuinely. Um, accurate reflection on the whole of what sentiment is in the country politically. Yeah. The system that we have at the moment is absolutely crazy. And, and to prove it, all you have to do is just think. Supposing you had a constituency of 100 people, 100 voters, and 10 people stand for election, eight of whom get 10 votes each, yeah. one of whom gets 9 votes, and one of whom gets 11 votes. That person with 11 votes goes to Parliament, yeah. representing 11 people out of the 100. And 89 others voted for somebody else. That is how our system works at the moment, mm. and it is completely unconscionable. When did you first feel that this, the Brexit question, I've got a, all right, I'm standing up for this. This is my, this is in, the ball is in my court now. I'm going to take the, take the ball by the horns and go for it. Well, I campaigned for the Remain side of the, of, of the argument. Um, and I have to say, always at the back of my mind, there was a very slight worry. Uh, I never really thought that, that Leave would win. But, but I, I was worried that the margin would be too small and that it wouldn't end the conversation. Mm. You know, as Nigel Farage said, had it been uh, 51.9, 48.1, the other way around, that wouldn't have left the, the situation in any happier state than it is now. So I was a bit worried about the margin being too small. Yeah. I was shocked to the marrow of my bones when, when you know, it went 51.9. Uh, and, um, you know, when, when you find yourself in a situation where you think a, a terrible mistake has been made, you simply can't leave it. Yeah. So I thought that morning, the morning that I woke up after the referendum, 
you know, something has to be done. We've got to fight this. Firstly, we need to look at the situation. We need to understand it. It's the thing that makes me so cross, is that Parliament never had a, a discussion, a debate about how to interpret the outcome. Mm. You know, here, here's what, here is the mature-minded, sensible, rational thing to do. Now, Parliament should have said, OK, we used a general election uh, franchise. That means that there were three groups of people who had a very material interest in the outcome and we didn't count them in. So we have to remember that they were excluded. EU Citizens of other EU countries living and working, paying their taxes here, they were excluded. Our own citizens living abroad, now we promised them that we were going to get rid of this stupid thing that they weren't allowed to have a vote if they'd been abroad for too long. That's mm. very unfair to our own fellow citizens. And 16 and 17 year olds whose whole future is at stake here. So they left them out. So it was from the referendum point of view, it was a restricted electorate. And as I said earlier, only 37%, that's not much more than a third of Mm. that electorate, voted to leave. It was an advisory referendum. That was said uh, in the drafting and in the discussion on the bill in 2015 in Parliament. The Minister for Europe, Mr Liddington, on the 16th of June, said in answer to a question in the House of Commons, this is advisory only, it's consultative only. Mm. So are we going to take the advice of a third of the restricted electorate and are we going to leave Europe or are we going to look at this and say what would the consequences be really find out what would happen if we did try to think of leaving the European Union what would the consequences be instead of which on the day after the referendum it was as if the referendum had been an overwhelming massive majority to leave and there was no question and no way of of discussing it nothing further to be said that is a scandal That is an absolute scandal. It is a terrible dereliction on the part of our political class. Mm. This country has been sold down the river by uh, that absolutely third-rate, unjustified reaction. It's taught us a big lesson about who we are now, what our political system is like now. That's why I said earlier, it's it's stripped the lid off the um, situation here. And once the dust has settled on Brexit, we really need to look at that. Oh, well, once the dust has settled, if it, if it ever will. Well, look, if it's stopped, uh, and th- there is a very good chance that it will be stopped this year, 2018, that by the end of this year, by Christmas this year, we will all be saying, thank God that is over. What an, a, a moment of madness in our history. What, what Really, what circumstances do you think will happen that Brexit will come to a grinding halt? Well, uh, um, uh, the Amendment 7... By the um, way, I like your positivity. <laughs> the, the Amendment 7 by Dominic Greaves requires that there be an Act of Parliament, a statutory act confirming that we will leave the EU. Yeah. And at that point, with the change in public opinion, with all the negative facts that keep accumulating day by day by day, finally, that Remain majority in Parliament may finally come to its senses and vote it down. That could happen in the autumn of this year. But what about the people? I mean, surely the people. Well, one of my questions is, you know, it's we are in danger of discrediting people that knowledgeably, you know, took a lot of time to vote for for Brexit, for vote to leave the European Union, and they're being not always, but in some circumstances, being looked at as as unqualified to have taken that vote. No, that's that's not the point. The the, the point, and I, I keep iterating this this figure, this thirty seven percent of the electorate. Mm. Now, look, just to put a bit of context on that, okay, it takes a, a minimum vote of forty percent of the total membership of a trades union for that trades union to be able to call a strike. Yeah. 
It takes 66% of the total membership of the House of Commons for the House of Commons to vote to go to a general election out of the parliamentary term. What you see there is the idea of a bar, a threshold, or of a supermajority, either one or the other. There is neither a bar nor a threshold in the EU referendum. Mm. But even though neither of those things were put in, the actual level of the vote, 37% of the total electorate, in any rational, mature constitutional arrangement would not be enough. So remember that figure. Remember that that figure represents about a quarter of the population of the country. And we know from polling that there is about a quarter of the population that does want to leave the EU. A quarter. And we know that some of that quarter would be very, very cross and upset indeed if we didn't leave the EU. But there's far more than a quarter of people who don't want to leave the EU and are going to be very cross if we do. So I think that there is, uh, and always has been, a majority, hard and soft, uh, both majority, uh, for membership in the EU. Do you think that, sorry, you were going to say... No, no, I was just going to say that... Look, we know that there are a lot of lies and misinformation, um, that there was a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, hidden campaigning through social media, you know, all the Cambridge Analytica stuff. We know that. We know that the Remain vote, most of the people who voted Remain voted for the same reason. Mm. We've known the EU for 40 years. Yeah. It's got its problems, but we think it's a great endeavour, yeah. and we've benefited hugely from it. Yeah. Whereas the people who voted Leave were many different kinds of people. Yeah. They had many different kinds of reasons. Some were xenophobic, some had this great idea about sovereignty, some were nostalgic for the British Empire. Others had been told by the Daily Mail for decades that um, Brussels demanded that bananas be a certain shape and so forth. So we know that there were lots of different Cheers, reasons. Boris. Yeah. And therefore, um, the uh, claim that people like Andrew Donas make that now that we know much, much, much more, both about the EU and about its benefits, on the one hand, and on the other hand, about all the disadvantages of leaving the EU, there should be an opportunity for people to think again. That was the second point that I was going to make to you, apart from the Amendment 7 Act of Parliament yes. vote. Uh, there's every likelihood that the House of Lords will require that there be a, a, a referendum on the deal, on a final deal, or confirming that we want to continue with this process. And that, too, could be something that's set in place before the end of this year. Yeah. And if it is, we know that Remain will win it. Recently, I saw a, a, um, a, a clip on YouTube of a chap uh, riding down, I think it was Whitehall, with, a knee, with an EU flag, mm. and really big one. And some people... As he came attacked to him, yeah. attacked him. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as philosophically, how, I mean, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but philosophically, how did it? How did that make you feel? I mean, and those are the kind of people that we're talking about here. That that quarter, whatever percentage mm. it is, that voted. Mm. Some of those people are capable of those, of those real horrible things. Yes, that's true, but 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 they are a percentage of that percentage. Yeah, true. They're not very many. And uh, if there were violence and upset and broken windows and policemen's helmets being knocked off and people with EU flags being bullied and what have you, that would happen. And it happens in other contexts too. It happened in the poll, tax riots, in the miners' strike uh, um, demos. These things happen. 
because the society is a very varied thing and there are indeed people who can't contain themselves and who think that the fist is just as important as the ballot box or the argument. So, you know, it's a kind of inevitability. One hopes that it won't happen, obviously. But there will be people who will be extremely upset if Brexit was stopped, just as I say there will be people, and I'm certainly one of them, who will be extremely upset if it goes ahead. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, one just has to live with those kinds of facts. I, I remember my point now, Anthony. It was, um, I, I personally feel that the Remain campaign um, ju- has just finally got going now. Yes, I agree with you. It was a terrible campaign. Yeah. That's because people didn't believe that it was all that necessary, really. Yeah. It was a terrible campaign. And we, we've only just, you know, you, you could find certain silver linings. One of them will be that we've seen that our political order needs reform. The other thing mm. is that for um, all the four decades that we've been part of the EU, we, we've pretended not to be. We've sort of closed our eyes to it. And we've had insufficient news about the EU. We've had insufficient interests and very low turnouts in EU elections. And this has been deliberate you know, if you go around London looking for EU flags on public buildings, you will find one at Courage's Hotel and you'll find one in Europe House in Smith Square, which is the European office in London, and hardly anywhere else. Whereas you go to any European Union yeah. country and there are EU flags with the national flags everywhere. I know. People yeah. know about the money that the EU... I mean, I went up, you know, I go around the country talking to Remainer groups and I went up to um, a northern city, I won't mention it, <laughs> and spoke to a, a rather sterling small group of Remainers in what was a very big leave uh, area yeah. and right outside the venue where I was speaking there was a big notice board about EU funding for a local project in uh, a leave area mm. people not clocking the fact that if we leave the EU we're going to have a diminished, a shrunken GDP, a smaller economy. And what does that mean? That means individual human beings being unemployed mm. I, I find it so difficult to sympathise with politicians who can treat people just as numbers. Mm. You know, if you or I were turned out of work and were unemployed, and our families and our homes and our mortgages, and and if there were a number of us who are turned out of work in a certain area, the local shop closes down because nobody's buying anything. You know, weeds start to grow out of the pavements. I mean, you know, it's the, the attrition, the corrosion on society yeah. of, of economic downturn is terrible. And the cost on individual human lives. Their mortality goes up and yeah. the age of death goes down when, when there's um, a lot of high unemployment. This is really awful. This yeah. is what surprises me about Labour. Mm. I mean, here, here is a Labour Party should be working on behalf of, of working people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it is supporting a Brexit which is going to make it impossible to d- deliver the kinds of policies that, to- that Labour wants to deliver. It's it's such a paradox, such a contradiction that I can't understand it. Yeah, I, th- I think it's also complacency because I have uh, had a co- conversation with previous guests who have alluded to the fact that, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're told that momentum is a bad thing and I, I need to do more investigation into that myself. But there are re- there are councillors, there are boards that are incredibly complacent within Labour mm. that have stagnated over the years and just simply, in, specifically from my own experience in London, have just let things com- completely turn to wreck and ruin, mm. and they do need to kick up the arse, mm. you know. I'd agree with you about that, but I don't think momentum is the right boot to, to be kicking them with for the following reason. Momentum is just a militant tendency revived. A militant tendency destroyed the, the, the Labour Party and put Tories into power for a very, very long time. Jeremy Corbyn, 
who seems to be a, a really nice bloke, you know, sort of his personal niceness, he's kind of a vuncular and, and people like him and all that. Um, I don't mind saying in public that I have seen very little evidence uh, about uh, his um, sort of brain power. About, you know, when I've listened to some interviews just recently, things that he said about the EU and the single market, I'm astonished. They just miss, it's just misinformation. It's just very, very ill-informed. Yeah. And that surprises me. I think probably the, the, the brains and the motivation uh, in the leadership of the Labour Party come respectively from Seamus Milne and John McDonnell. And Seamus Milne is a Wickhamist. He was educated at Winchester School, one of the top public schools. He went to Balliol College, Oxford. His father was the director general of the BBC. Here's a man who uh, you know, comes uh, unimpeachably out of the establishment. Obviously, something happened. It's sort of shades of another country. You know, that story about the, the spies because they couldn't get into Pop in Eden. Yeah. Uh, that he's turned against the, 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 the establishment and the quote-unquote elite. I keep saying quote-unquote elite because I don't <laughs> believe in these things. Uh, and, and, and he's done it in, in, in a way which has driven the Labour leadership to support something that will actually make the lives of working people and people on middle and lower incomes much, much more difficult. And I find that, well, I find it not only incomprehensible, but I find it reprehensible. Hmm. I, I take your point there. I've all, I've, I'm on the fence at the moment politically. Uh, I don't mind saying that either. But I... Uh, I, I just find it really astonishing that it, it is the absolute defining issue of our time and, and Jeremy Corbyn is quite happy to hold hands with, with a Tory government potentially damaging our country in such a way that actually leads people like Michael Heseltine to say you'd prefer it would damage the country so much have a Brexit that it's probably preferable to have a Jeremy Corbyn-led government mm-hmm. than, a, than a Tory one. This mm-hmm. is how like crazy things are getting. Mm-hmm. But you, you touched earlier on... on uh, Cambridge Analytica. Now, that's quite an interesting one because the Trump campaign learned from the Brexit campaign and, the, and Cambridge Analytica then helped that's the right. Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. Could you speak a little bit on that? Because that's really fascinating. Yes, it is. It's very, very fascinating. And by the way, one can back this up uh, um, you know, quite richly. In fact, I spoke to a member of the security services in Australia a couple of months ago who tells me that uh, everything which is coming out about the manipulation of targeted groups, the so-called hyper-targeting technique that the um, big data uh, companies are able to put to work, what they do is they harvest hundreds of millions of data points from social media and they're able to profile people with incredible accuracy. And moreover, they can profile groups as well with very, very great accuracy and they test messaging to those groups so they can hyper-target. This is uh, very, very uh, beautifully crafted and tailored messages to very, very small groups of people. Different message for different groups. Mm. And that means that they can take all these groups, even if the groups have nothing else in common with one another, that they can aggregate them. Now just, just, just think of it this way, okay? In a, a, a presidential election, you've got Mr. A and Mrs. B. In an EU referendum, you've got in, out. So you've just got two options. And you will have the outers and the inners, you will have the Trumps and the Clintons, and mm. in between them, you will have a group of people who can be moved. Either they've made up their minds, or they could be manipulated, or they could be sort of sold an idea, mm. and which will get them to move in one direction rather than the other. And those are the people that these companies, like Cambridge Analytica, target. So, they identify these groups, they test the messaging on them, they hyper-target the messages to them and they get just enough of them to move 
so that they can tip the balance. Now, uh, Hillary Clinton got three million votes more than Trump got, mm. but he got the right votes in the right place to get the Electoral College. In the case of the EU referendum, not only w w was uh, um, Cambridge Analytica sending out messages to leavers reinforcing the bananas and the 350 million to the NHS and so on, but they were also messaging Remainers mm. saying, Remain is going to win easily. Remain is going to win easily. Now, why were they saying that? Well, it's because you can tell if you're a sophologist, a student of uh, voting habits, you can tell with great precision what the drop will be in a turnout if it rains in a given constituency. On the day of the referendum, it rained in London. The drop in the turnout was completely predictable and it was larger in margin than the margin by which well, leave won. I remember because I was driving to Glastonbury that day and I was going to do a bit of work before I went there. And in Clapham, it was like five foot of rain one in the air. And I remember when you were, I heard you um, giving this lecture and I was, oh my God, it did rain. He mm. is right. Mm -hmm. This is not fake news. Yeah, this, yeah, it yeah. did piss it down. I remember yeah, yeah. it now. Yeah. yeah. And it stops people. So people think, well, I don't have to vote because they're going to win easily. Yeah. So I don't have to vote. So, you know, you, you can target messaging at people which, which you both support your own side and turn off the other side. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about the weaponization of the internet then, in terms of politically? Well, the good news is we've spotted it. You know, some brilliant work done by Carol Cadwallader on The Observer to mm. expose all this. Uh, and the Americans are doing us a big favour too by dragging out all the yeah. uh, manipulations that came out of Russia. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen that uh, quite a bit of it in the EU referendum came out of Russia as well because it's in their interests to destabilise and to break up they do quite a lot of work on this. By the way, they're not, they're not alone. Everybody, everybody, all governments, including us, the Brits, we do this as well. We message and we you know, get stuff out into social media in other countries mm. but to, to use the nudge technique. You know, the Nobel Prize for economics was won by the man who came with this idea of nudging, influencing people. Yes. Just a little I, push, a little, you, you know. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and this is going on all the time. But it, when we don't, know that it's happening when it's hidden mm. that's very corrosive yeah. because it doesn't matter who you know any, anybody can try and persuade you to vote one way rather than another anybody can can say i've got an agenda and i want you to share it that's fine just so long as you know it and then yeah. you can make up your own mind yeah i mean do you do you feel like we should be getting out of the echo chamber out of the whatever percentage it is remain votes uh and, and trying to converse more with our family members, with our friends that were perhaps voting emotionally, like we all, I suppose some of us did. I didn't vote emotionally necessarily. I voted with my head. Mm. Part of me thought, what would my dad do? Mm -hmm. You know, and then I went with that and then I built up a, 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 a ideas around that. But it does strike me that there's a lot of, you know, people I mean on this show this this podcast is totally guilty of it. Mm -hmm. Well we have all you know, I've only really spoken to Remainers. Mm. Do you feel it's necessary? Well, you should go and talk to some leavers if you find. I, I mean, I, I, I think you would find if you talk to a range of leavers, a, a range of views as to why they left. Because I think the only people who have a really clear idea of why they want Brexit and mm. what it's going to deliver to them are people who are likely to benefit because they want to be in a deregulated, low tax 
uh, economic environment where they will benefit. They'll have a much, much bigger slice of a smaller pie. Yeah. People like uh, Rees Mogg and Aaron Banks and so on, you know, and who want us to be out of the EU before the EU closes down all the tax, ho- tax yeah. haven loopholes. Yeah. But look, it's good to be in the echo chamber because you reinforce and support all your, your friends on your side of the argument. But of course, you should also be outside the echo chamber. You should also be listening to and talking to other people. A really, a really key thing here is this. You will hear people say, there were a lot of people in, in our country who felt left behind, who uh, felt marginalized, who were not being listened to. They've been suffering uh, over the last 10 years since the 2008 crash, but even longer than that. Mm. And this is true. For the last, I think, about a third of a century, actually, going way back to the 80s, there have been people on middle and lower incomes whose living standards have absolutely stagnated. Mm. Whereas people up in the top 1 or 2% have seen their wealth increase fourfold since 2008. Fourfold. When you get inequality in a society, a big gap between those who have and those who haven't, mm. that's very toxic. It's very dangerous to society. It's not poverty, it's inequality. Mm. It's the sense of injustice in a society. And that sense has been growing. Mm. Now look at any, any economy at any point in its history. Economies are always in transition. Transition means new sectors of the economy are opening up, new opportunities for people, and parts of the economy are dying, and people in those parts of the economy are suffering. Mm. So economies are always in transition, and there are always people who are in danger of being left behind, who are being left behind. Mm. Good government keeps alert to that fact, is aware of mm. that fact, and should be helping those people and doing stuff to, to help those people. What's happened here in the UK since 2010 is an austerity program, mm. which has hurt those people even more. Mm. Now, those people are, they're not the whole 25% of Brexiters, they're maybe 10% or something like that. Mm. But they're people we ought to be caring about. We ought to be talking about those people, and we ought to be talking to those people. We ought to be putting in place economic measures that will help those people. Obviously, I mean, that's just good sense. Mm. But that good sense has been completely absent for the last eight years. Yeah. And that has to be part of the story. It's only part of it, but it has to be part of the story. Why, why do you feel that, that has been, they have personally why do you feel they've been ignored why do you think why do you think um austerity has been given that oh, why it's been given such a, a free reign and why have we allowed it to happen as a society well look re- remember that the 2008 crash was a very very serious financial crash worldwide and it threatened the world economy and had it really all gone completely belly up the consequences would have been vastly worse even than they were mm. So there was a, a rescue. By the way, one of the architects of the rescue was Gordon Brown. Now he's somebody who's you know uh, part in this ought to be recognised more. I think. At any rate, when the coalition government came in in 2010, the conservative economic policy was the one that dominated, as it has done ever since. Yeah, and that has been a policy for austerity. The way to recover their national finances is, you know, you've got to cut back, you, you can't spend money, you can't borrow money, blah. Yeah. So that's uh, uh, what they've been doing. It's been a bit of an excuse, actually, because public borrowing has risen massively under them. And what they've really done is that they have uh, 
refused to invest. Keynes used to say, in a downturn, you must spend money, you must invest money, you borrow it and invest it, and get the economy back. And in good times, that's when you cut back, that's when you save a bit of money. You don't do it the other way around. Spend when you've got it and, and yeah. save when you haven't got it. You do it the other way around. And they didn't do that, and they made the situation worse, I think. That, that I'm afraid, is, is um, well, we don't really a big have part a, of the We don't problem. have a lot to um, show for austerity, and we're leaving the European Union. So it's been a pretty crap 10 years. Oh, God, it's been sort of double whammy, done the wrong thing you know, again yeah. and again. And leaving the European Union, you see, with those Brexiters who voted to leave the EU because they felt left behind, because of austerity, because their living standards had dropped, have chosen exactly the wrong remedy for their problem. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I, it's just I wonder where, where we're going to be in, in another 10 years' time. Oh, that's easy to say. We will be full members of the EU. Yeah. Because either Brexit is going to be stopped, or a sort of worst case scenario is an incredibly soft, squidgy, squashy Brexit, which is not really Brexit, but it's just called that to save a lot of political faces. <laughs> yeah. And it will be kind of temporary. And in a couple of years' time, three, four years' time, remember there's a big shift demographically and a big shift you know, for Remain. Um, a, a, a government in future will take us back into the EU and it will be considerably before 10 years is up. Well, who's going to be? I mean, blimey, O'Reilly. I can't. I'd, I'd love to see who's going to lead that. Re, re, that I don't know. Revolution in inverted commas. I, I mean, the Liberal Democrats. So you sort of, they thought that's a national rallying point was the around the general election that is 2017 to gather around those pro-Europeans. It didn't happen. It didn't materialise. Is there any reason to suggest that it would materialise? It would happen under another party. Uh, well, this is not a party political broadcast on behalf of the Liberal Dems, but I, I do think that they've been a little bit unfairly treated since the general election because their supporters voted tactically in in, in big swathes mm. in order to try to reduce the Tory majority. Along with the Greens. Very, very successfully, yeah. yeah. So, you know, what might happen in the next general election is a different story. But it's not going to be the current leadership of the, either Conservative or Labour that does this. But yeah. just imagine, supposing, supposing Labour survives this, hmm. It may not, neither the Labour nor the Conservative Party might survive what's happening at the moment. They might split. There might be a new political um, formation yeah. over the coming three to five years. Uh, British politics is incredibly tribal, so it's quite likely that Conservatives and Labour will continue more as they are. But mm. with new leaderships, and new leaderships will be forced by, by realities to think about knocking on the EU's door and go back in if we'd, if we'd gone out. Yeah. I mean, in the EU itself, if you talk to people in, the, in Brussels, I've met some of the people who are you know, players in this from the EU side, and they point out that the acquis, as they call it, that's the conditions that have to be satisfied for membership, remain fully in place all the way through the negotiation period, all the way through a transition period, yeah. at any point at which, because the EU doesn't want the UK to leave. Yeah. So at any point, the UK could say, oh, well, actually, we want to stay. Yeah. And for some considerable time afterwards, the conditions would still be very easily met. Uh, so at any point in the next five to ten years, we could go back in pretty swiftly. Yeah. There's even a clause, clause Article 49 of the Lisbon Treaty, or talk about Article 50, yeah. uh, which is a readmission uh, article. Yeah. But let, let's hope we don't get there, because if we can stop Brexit long before then, then we will be limiting the amount of damage that's happening to the country. Where can, where can people go to to read, not necessarily... Do you have a, a, a 
a cool hip website that people can go to. Why did I say cool hip website? <laughs> my God, am I yeah. trying to sound like my mum? Hmm. Is there anywhere people can go to sort of your pro-European um, philosophy? Yes, um, almost all of the articles I've written uh, on the Brexit situation, and which have been published in the New European newspaper, most of them, are on my website, so yeah. just AC Grayling. So there's a website there, and then the articles are there. Now they do a damn good job, right? And who who asked yeah. you into the fold there? Because I, I I know some of those guys quite well. And yeah. Well, Matt Kelly. Yeah, yeah. I met Matt Kelly. I think he's done a brilliant job. This was meant to be a newspaper that was going to have one or two you know, editions, yeah. and there it is now, become quite an important. And what was your favourite piece you've written for the New European? Then? Well, my personal favourite one is the IOQs. Mm-hmm. which is modelled on uh, Zola, you know, the Dreyfus affair, I accuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, we did that at the time of the party conferences back in October. God, yeah. Laying out a challenge to MPs as to why they've behaved as they've behaved, mm-hmm. and to any Brexiter to give us a cogent, uh, persuasive argument mm. about the case for Brexit. And do you know what? I've written... Um, sort of formal letters to every MP mm-hmm. and sent it to every MP on three separate occasions now. Mm. Uh, I get replies from some MPs to say, yes, I agree with you, but I've got to obey the party whip. I get silence from quite a lot of MPs mm. and I get uh, abuse and vituperation from some MPs, one of whom even said that he was going to try and get the police on me for harassment. I wrote back and I said, bring it on, mate. You know, be absolutely <laughs> tremendous. Yeah. Some idiot Tory MP from, you know, somewhere else. Yeah. He said he was going to have me up for harassment. I'd love that, you know, if, if you were to do it. Yeah. But nobody, none of them, none of them have addressed the argument point by point. Mm. Uh, you know, about, about the nature of the referendum, about what Parliament should have done, about the use of the whip in, in a matter which is so divisive in the country. You know, all those points need to be addressed. I invited them again and again to answer, and yeah. nobody has. Yeah, I wonder why. Wonder why that is. Oh, because they haven't got an answer. That's the main reason. Silence is a is a very speaking thing. Yeah, no, especially with the system we we are in. It's 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 very it's handy. Hmm. It seems to work somehow. But before before we go, I'm still stuck on some of the beautiful songs that you chose. Mm-hmm. The uh, particularly Brahms. I mm-hmm. think you said you'd take that with you. To the island yeah. and the piano. Mm-hmm. So you 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 play. There's not a piano in here that I can see. There's a piano in the, one floor down. Oh really? Yeah. And when everybody goes home uh, and the and the building is empty, I go and uh, open it up and I play sometimes. Yes. Absolutely. So I can't encourage you to have a little <laughs> for the podcast. Then uh, I'll play. For I don't think so. Not at this time of day. There's too much going on in the too college. Much going on. Yeah. So I play the piano. and I play the guitar. Yeah. I used to uh, play in a band. In fact, I used to play with them. Oh, uh, yeah. Guitar in a band. A long time ago now. Because Anthony, for those, for those of you listening, has got the most amazing. What well, you would be very familiar with Anthony's get-up, his hairstyle is very. You know, you remind me of um, the bass player in, in the Zombies. Oh wow! But he used to play bass in the Kinks. Yeah. Um, and I oh, saw well, them, I saw yeah. them not so long ago, and they were absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, you could rock a bass guitar, I think. Well, do you know what? I started playing bass. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and then, but then um, it turned out that the guy who thought he could do vocals couldn't really. So I did vocals in the band, and playing bass. If you want to play good bass, yeah. you've got to concentrate a little bit. So it is yeah, so much easier to play with them if you're going to do yeah, vocals. Yeah, so definitely. So what's your kind of preference then, pop pop wise, pop music? Because I know you like classical, obviously. Well, uh, I'm, I, I'm 
I'm very Catholic in my musical taste. I'm a great lover of, of, of classical music, mm. and I li- listen. I suppose I listen to classical music and to jazz more than I listen these days, anyway, to rock and pop. But um, in an earlier avatar, sixties, seventies, yeah. that that kind of era is, is more my era now you know yeah I've, I've got a cd a double cd actually of of all the hits of the 60s oh, really? and yeah. just occasionally i pop that on and i'm, I'm boogieing around the living room you know, when yeah. nobody's well, watching there's um <laughs> I, I interviewed a chap not so long ago um tim bentink who plays david archer in the arches for oh, a christmas yeah. special and he talks about his dad in his book he talks about his dad listening to scott mckenzie um if you're going to san francisco mm. And it's really funny because just before he read that, I, I don't know what happened, a few pages before, I had that in my head. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange thing mm-hmm. that happened. But I can I can imagine you, no offence, no offence, <laughs> with a flower in your hair, ah, yeah, listening well, to yeah. a bit of Scott McKenzie. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, easily, yeah. So what, what are you, a baritone singer or...? Uh, no, I suppose, uh, you know, sort of um, a tenor, a lower yeah. part of the tenor register. This is uh, misleading because I've got a bit of a throat at the moment, so it sounds oh, a bit really? baritone, yeah. Okay. Uh, but, um, yeah, so I would, would sing, you know, I could sing A Wandering Minstrel Eye in, in, uh, in um, you know, the uh, uh, Savoy uh, operettas, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very extraordinary thing. Mahatma Gandhi said that, the thing that gave him peace was listening to music. Mm. And it's true that music, it's a language, it's a, it's a, a universe. And when you step into it and allow it to carry you away, it does wonderful things for you because it is very peacemaking and, and uh, tranquilizing. But it's also, it's also incredibly interesting. I found myself getting lost following the thread through something like a violin concerto or a symphony. Mm. And um, Brahms... Uh, um, Schubert, um, Vorjak, I suppose. Certainly, you know people like um, Beethoven, Mozart, and, and all the rest. Mm. I, I find it a, an adventure every time, even to listen to very, very familiar pieces that I listen yeah. to again and again. Now, I'd, I'd say um, uh, Sibelius, Sibelius, uh, and Dante Festivo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have you are you familiar with that? Piece? Sibelius, yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dante Festivo is mm. absolutely extraordinary. It. Mm. it it really is made for obviously Finnish composer, deep winters and what have you, and hope within those deep dark winters, mm-hmm. specifically as a gardener. Mm-hmm. And we've just had three of the most beautiful days of, of winter I've ever known in my life. It, it hasn't been freezing, it hasn't been too cold, and the skies have been mesmeric, absolutely astonishing. And I haven't taken advantage of playing any classical music to mm-hmm. it. And just thinking, talking about, talk about it now, it would have made a lot of sense to do that. But I, I used to write a lot to um, to Bach his uh, cello concerto. Yes, so yes, just, just con- you know, yeah. like two or three minute long, yes, right? yeah. and then yeah. and then another one, and another one, another one. You mean the cello suite, just the yes, solo sorry, cellos? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Ast- oh yeah. my goodness, yeah. astonishing! It's wonderful. Yeah. But your selection got me going. Oh, got, good, got my heart going. Okay. It was very sweet. It was very nice. But anyway, should we should we stop? Yeah, I'm very, very happy to. Yeah, yeah, that How- was brilliant. Uh, to read that. Oh, you can, you've got to say goodbye to the listeners. Oh, I've always forget that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let me say goodbye to all the listeners. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you, I must say. So let me say goodbye to all the listeners. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you, I must say.
Don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen.